Hey, smart mamas. Welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits. Relationships, finance, mental health, work. And we aren't sugarcoating anything. No way, or way. This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you originally from? And I am originally yeah. from Jamaica. So I've been in the States for 20 years this uh, August, actually. Came to school for undergrad here on uh, Maryland Eastern Shore at University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Um, That's awesome. I love your accent. I could listen to you talk all day. I know. Oh, good. I so have wait, this uh, co worker that says that all the time. So August, good. what did you come? 26 or so. Oh, okay. So you were just happy 20th. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. COVID 20. You think I don't lost my accent by now? No, don't lose it. It's the best. And you'll exactly. sound like the rest of us. No. Um, <laughs> tell us about you. So you came over to the US, you went to nursing school. What was your journey like after that? I mean, like my journey was was different leading up to nursing school. I didn't go to nursing school right away. I actually got my bachelor's in biology with a chemistry minor. Damn. And then kind of goofed mm-hmm. off for like three years. I worked as a personal trainer. I worked in Victoria's Secret. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I got free makeup and discount on fragrances. And then I moved back to Maryland. I actually enrolled in Towson for my master's in biology. And when I looked at what my research was going to be and what I had to do, I was like, first of all, I don't like gypsy moth and I'm fine. (laughs) So I decided that I wasn't going to do that anymore. After my first semester, I had a good semester. It was 4.0. It was great. But I was like, I cannot do this. This is not for me. So... I worked at McCormick as a chemistry lab tech. That was fun because I got spices at a discount. So McCormick spices. <laughs> I love um, you and cool. your discounts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, listen, we got like a spice jar like this big with, I don't know, different spices. It was crazy. And then I just, I had to come at a crossroads. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? So I went to the University of Maryland, Baltimore, and I actually did the clinical nurse leader master's program, which, because I already had a bachelor's, I was, my ego was like, I'm not going back for another bachelor's. And while I was in school, um, I met, was it while I was in school? I kind of knew about nurse anesthesia, but it wasn't anything. Like, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to, let me kind of set myself up to to be able to go to school. So, at the end of nursing school, like my last semester, I interviewed at the surgical ICU at the University of Maryland, and he turned me down 
mm. because I said my long-term goal was to go to neuroanesthesia school. So I learned my lesson. Yeah, I think we all Not learned that lesson. You're going to <laughs> neuroanesthesia nurse school if you're interviewing the ICU because, of course, they think that they're the the mill for that. So I got my start in the neuro ICU and I really loved it there actually uh, if I was not a nurse anesthetist I'd probably be like a neurosurgeon NP or something like that because um, I'm just fascinated with the brain and the functions and disease processes. Kaya when you came to the states did you come all alone? Uh, yeah just I said goodbye to my mom my boyfriend at the time and my best friend at the time and I was actually crying more for my boyfriend and my best friend than my mom. Because <laughs> you were 20. Actually, I was, what, 17 and I came Yeah. In. And uh, my friend, who became my best friend eventually, picked me up from the airport and drove me to the Eastern Shore. It was weird. I yeah. didn't cry, but I was definitely like, I'm away from home. But I've been away, like I've been to away camps, I've traveled, I've been away from our parents, but this, the, the permanent, yeah. the permanent, like the finality of this was, was different. And I went back and visited like for the summers because I actually was still competing in track and field. So I went home the first, the first two summers of college and that second summer, my sophomore year, I actually represented Jamaica at the World Junior Championship. So I, I did, wow. I had to go home to compete. So Way I, to go. That's yeah. pretty badass. Yeah. Look at her, like, <laughs> she's like, competitive athlete and 4.0. It's like, yeah, no, too good for this master's program. We're going to go to a different one. Yeah, like, me. I would have been as I would not have been living my purpose. Like amazing. Yeah, no, I would not have been fully feeling my purpose if I if I did that at all. No, you wouldn't, girl. You have so much more to give than sitting in a lab. So, what was like the most surprising thing coming to America, and kind of like what your experience was like when you, you know, first started, like, and you were fully um, in the culture. I think for me, I, I don't know, not very much was surprising because I traveled so much. So I kind of mm-hmm. had an idea. There are certain, there are different, like different things like how you say certain words, just the the cultural way of handling things. But I, you know, I was pretty adaptable. So I, I, it wasn't, it didn't affect me immensely. It was just like, oh, that's what you do. Okay, then I just kept on moving. And nothing glaring. I wouldn't say I've already, like prior to coming to the States permanently, I already experienced like racial encounters. So I knew it was fully there. So it wasn't something that I was sheltered from having mm-hmm. to experience. In Jamaica, it's different. It's like a social thing or maybe like colorism maybe as opposed to like racism but yeah when I was 15 I came up on our mission trip and we were profiled in a grocery store in Jacksonville Florida so <laughs> you know yeah. I wasn't not I, I'm fully aware of that but when I came to the states I went to the University of Maryland Eastern Shore and it was at HBCU so we're on our own little the um I don't know what, what call it, but our own organization, our thing there. Mm-hmm. And I was involved in track and field. So it allowed us to travel and integrate and like 
be out there and engage with these people. So I feel like I was well-rounded enough to not be surprised because I traveled a lot when I was younger and I, you know, I came to the States multiple times before. It's just that, no, I was living here. Yeah. So you didn't Um, didn't really experience racism until you came to the U.S. What is colorism? Can you describe what the difference is between, I mean, not difference. Can you just tell us what colorism is? Because I've never heard. Well, it's more like, you know, when you're saying dark skin, light skinned. Oh, 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 okay. That kind of thing. It's just, you kind of, what is the word? Actually, like, to an extent, women with darker skin you know back home would probably not feel as beautiful because everyone tends to focus on the the lighter skin with the different texture here and and that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff so I don't know about glaring discrimination as far as that I just know that the experience in terms of just you know things people might say or just culturally you just kind of witness things happen Mm -hmm. um you know so for me that just again it never really stopped me from being able to do what i needed to do so clearly i know you like <laughs> you made it happen so how have you then experienced you know coming here going through nursing school going through anesthesia school working in the or now having all of these opportunities at your fingertips can you talk to us a little bit about your personal experience with i guess maybe the medical field or specifically anesthesia or the operating room environment and pertaining to people of color and racism and how you've experienced that there that you've never experienced, obviously, where you come from. I think I probably paid a lot more attention to just the subtleties of, I, I, it's not like blatant racism. I think it's probably like an implicit bias. And, oh, but I don't even know. They call it what it is, spade a spade. Um, I had one experience in particular this was it this year? I, I, you know, yeah, early on this year before COVID, or late to the towards the end of last year, where I was working, and I went to introduce myself to a patient. She was very nervous. Oh, I need anesthesiologist. You know, I um, I had this procedure before. I was very nauseous and blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, fine. I'm the nurse anesthetist, nurse anesthesia provider. I'm, I can help you. Let me know, you know, which procedure you had and, you know, what are the events that occurred? Um, well, you know, and she was basically very adamant that she needs to be gone. So I said, that's fine. Um, but I will be in the room primarily taking care of you. I do have an idea of the medications that I would need to give you to prevent, you know, your medic- um, to prevent you from having this severe nausea. I do believe that it's because of the nature of the procedure, because it was a gynecological procedure that probably um, increased the likelihood that you did have the nausea um, afterwards um, but she was still kind of adamant but even prior to that she kept on saying well I have a friend who is oncologist and I wouldn't have her do my anesthesia I was like yes ma'am I understand but I'm a trained uh, anesthesia a nurse anesthetist I can you know do your anesthesia I've been doing this for a while I I specialize in ortho. This is what I've been doing. And she's adamant, adamant. And then she kept on repeating. I, I went back to my room to get the medications together. So I kept, I don't know, I was getting like Pepsi or like whichever cocktail I was thinking about giving at the time. And I went and told anesthesiologist, I was like, hey, you know, come on and meet this patient. So I'll go back to pre-op and 
I say to her, okay, you know, I have these medications I'm going to give to you preemptively to help with your nausea. And she basically said, you know, I have a parent who has an oncologist and I'm godmother to her kids and she's, and she's black and I would never have her do my anesthesia. I was just like, so that's what it is. What? I was like, you know what? So I, then I walked away and the anesthesiologist came in and he basically, because he's talking to her and he had to stand in between her and myself. because cause What, could see what is the face. race of the anesthesiologist? He's Indian. Okay. I think yeah so he um comes and stands in between myself and her and I'm like and she's like oh it's not because of, it's not because she's black it's just and I'm just like and as he's talking to her I kind of mouth to him I was like I am not doing this case and I walk away and he didn't and he didn't know that she had said that because when he walked out of the room he was like why are you acting like that I'm like you didn't hear what she said and I was like you know what you don't get it but her surgeon was black so I'm like why is she saying this and then I was like, you know what? It's probably because I was female, one, because when the anesthesiologist came in, she lit up. And then I was a nurse, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, nurse anesthetist. And then, because she kept on saying, my friend's not oncologist, my friend's not oncologist, I wouldn't have her do my anesthesia. I was like, but that's a different specialty. And then she finally said, my friend, she's black, and I wouldn't have her do my, you know, my oncology, she's black, and I wouldn't have her, and I love her kids. And I'm like, what does that have to do with the price of rights? Right. So I removed myself from the case. And that's the only like glaring thing in terms of like my practice. I've certainly seen things in school. I've seen students get targeted at my, my clinical site. Um, I've seen my classmates get targeted also. And it's kind of hard because you try to, you're always, as a Black person, you have to, be on top of it, be the best, study the hardest so that you don't give anyone anything to talk about or to to have anyone to say, you know, I don't know, you're not going to pass your boards because you got like a 3.0. And there was someone who I know personally who they really got on her. She passed her board and she's actually a great clinician, but she was targeted and really just really targeted for our last semester of school I felt so badly it was crazy can you describe targeted like like in what ways so it's like when you are this person has test like test taking anxiety so it's not going to be like the best scenario like oral boards or anything like that and it's just really in just the exchange of words like if she didn't feel empowered to go and seek help she didn't feel empowered when she went to go for her reviews. It was just a lot of just negative exchanges. And you can also, and, and really when you think about it too, and you see other students who, there was this one dude that drew um, IV fluids, uh, mixed, reconstituted uh, antibiotics from, uh, from one patient to give to another patient from their IV fluids. And only got remediated and went, got back to the next year. If it was a student of color, sorry, she would have been out. Wow. Same. So one of my other classmates, first two weeks of clinical, they didn't even remediate her. They kicked her out. So it it wasn't it wasn't a fair. And I personally walked in on just you know just 
at the clinical site that I was, you, you could you could see how they were about the students of, of color. And it wasn't until like after I kind of pulled back and spoke to other students, because it was my own story, that you realize that this was the case. The culture so, has since shifted, but... What was the population of the staff members working there? Was there diversity? Were there people of color on staff or was it a primarily like, you know, blank sheet kind of a... On my clinical side? Yeah, yeah. The one where... two black people. Yeah. (laughs) Where I trained, it was like... Yeah. So, but like where you're saying the people were targeted. I'm trying to think. Was there diversity in that program or was it very... Model there wasn't there wasn't there wasn't much diversity as i thought about my program was five of us in 28 and at the the site associated with the school wasn't very diverse but my primary site was somewhere else and that wasn't really diverse either mm-hmm. yeah and it seems like it would make it really difficult for somebody to feel like they're supported or have somewhere to even turn when there's nobody else that looks like them that can even sympathize with the situation Mm -hmm. um you know because you can say oh i'm sorry but you know you don't feel safe because they're all going to kind of have each other's backs you know Mm -hmm. because i understand representation is representation is important yeah not like i'm very like i'm selective if you're a good if you're a good provider i'm going to tell like it doesn't matter color not color race creed as a student because i've trained students multiple multiple students it doesn't matter if you're a good clinician it, you know, it is what it is, but I wouldn't on purpose, like, try to marginalize students of any other color, as a matter of fact, and it's unfortunate because, you know, you try to be like, listen, we have to be the best, like, why are you coming into clinicals looking like a slacker and not prepared? You're supposed to be on, on point, but I don't selectively coach anyone different from the other just based on any deficits, obviously, if it's anything glaring, then yes. But So you almost want to hold people, uh, students of color, to a higher standard so they don't get targeted. You know what I mean? Almost. Like, I want to help coach, but yeah. it's also that I don't want to be selective because mm-hmm. my job is to make sure that I furnish students with the best possible experience at my site. Yeah. So I try not to. I just sometimes I have a little bit of disappointment when it's just mm-hmm. like you come in and you're not you're not on it like oh yeah. <laughs> I understand what you mean though. It's almost like people are already waiting for you to yeah. screw up or do something wrong or say something wrong and like don't give them ammunition. You need to go right? the extra mile. Anything. Yeah, to prevent that, but it's almost sad that you have to. You know, but I guess that that's the world right now. And I understand where you're coming from, too, where you're like, don't walk into it. You know, the door is wide open. Just don't walk through it. It's not that hard, but it's tough because that's I don't think that has anything to do with the people of color. I think some people are just lazy and some people are not. It's oh, yeah, just no, unfortunate that's... when, you know, you already have like the odds stacked One against, you, against and then you over. You're doing like, that you... foolishness. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So my. I know Myra came on and I'm so glad to see her because she just had a little baby recently. And as soon Hi, as she came on, Hi. we're like, show us the baby. Which probably yes. sleeping, right? 
And she's oh, like, she there? Oh, oh. I know that. <laughs> I we see you get to baby. see some beautiful pictures. Baby sleeping. <laughs> no, she's yeah. very much asleep. <laughs> I know. I said, we're so Good selfish. You. you probably put her to sleep and we're like, show us the baby. <laughs> yes, she's gone. She went down fighting today. Oh, yeah. that was mine too. Yeah. How has it been for you since having a baby? How has your life changed as a mom and especially in the world going on right now? Ooh. I'm a little overwhelmed. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, to be honest with you, because I'm trying to find my balance and uh-huh. it is lost. <laughs> and mm. so I'm trying to that find... That sounds about little, right. Yep. So I'm trying to find um, little pieces where I can begin to carve out so, just a few moments for myself. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. You know, post-COVID now, one of the things that I've always enjoyed doing is I've always enjoyed working out. Don't have time to work out. At four mm-hmm. o'clock in the afternoon, and my kid goes to bed at six thirty, seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to, you know, modern problems require modern solutions. Yeah, definitely. So, um, this may end up with me buying a Peloton. You know, <laughs> there you go. There you I go. I like make sure you add me. <laughs> we have another person, guys. I need a Peloton. I've been fighting it for so long. I don't They're know why. Dropping I'm the price. It. You should get it. They are. The problem yeah. is that they're dropping the price because they're coming out with the new one. Don't get oh. the new one. Yeah, but Don't that's like the iPhone. The like, is it actually different? Probably not. Don't believe it. I know it has the swivel out TV portion. But it only goes like What are you going to do? If you can stream it on your seat, right. Stream it on your TV. Like if you want to do a little artwork on the floor, stream it on your TV. I am not getting that new bag. It's not even worth it. I want actually. Guys, we're trying to get a Peloton sponsorship going here. This is not helping. Yeah, wouldn't you guys <laughs> die if we could get like a big CRNA mom Peloton discount? Oh yeah, we've been, I've been oh my gosh, their emails be nonstop. I'm that like, hi, perfect. do you want to work with us yet? How about yeah. now? We're, like, we're actively oh, no, what that. now <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's we crazy. Need more people. We need more people underneath that hashtag to kind of drive it up and bring awareness yeah, we do. to like all these Peloton people are CRNA here. Moms. Yeah. yeah, I actually saw yes. them on um, uh, one of the Peloton people on BBC the other day talking about how much the stock prices had gone up because yes. of the increase in purchase post-COVID. Mm. But you know what's going to go up somewhere? When the winter time comes around and nobody's going anywhere. Yeah. So we just yeah. buy that stock. Okay, so please. buy stock and buy Peloton. Yes. yes. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, so um, I want to hear a little bit about Myra's story. I know that a lot of uh, listeners have not heard your story yet. We kind of want to hear like where you came up from, how you ended up as a nurse anesthetist, and just to catch you up on what we've talked about so far and what you've uh, dealt with or struggled with in the medical community, which, you know, everyone thinks is like very highly educated. We're high earning. We have no problems at all. No racial problems. We are all very socially normal people and it's quite the opposite. So I want to hear about that. Well, I was actually born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and I left there and went to Middle Tennessee State University. And that is where I got my initial RN licensure um, and degree from. And then I went back to Memphis and worked there as an RN in labor and delivery for a couple of years before I left. Then I went to Michigan. I don't get into the CRNA portion until I till the next move, which was in Maryland. But when I was in Memphis, what I will say inherently is that that is where I learned how to be a critical care nurse. 
period. It didn't matter. We had to do so much critical thinking because those girls in Memphis, when those ladies would come in to have their babies, if there was nothing else wrong with them, we would put rule out like R slash O and put a big N by it because it was rule out normal. There was something always wrong with our patients because they were either preeclamptic, eclamptic. We had a large population of sickle cell patients. We had a large population of drug abusing mothers. They were severely ill. Um, And we had four OBICU beds at the time. And so that is how I learned how to be a critical care nurse. And so by the time I got to Maryland and my patients were normal all the time, I was like, well, gosh, I'm so bored. I don't, I don't know what to do. Babies can be born in beds. You don't need nobody to catch them. (laughs) You know, so I was bored and there was a CRNA that I met um, and his name was Craig and he's from New Mexico. And that is all I remember of him at this point, but played a pivotal role in my story because he came to me one night. He said, baby girl, you are bored and we can all tell. Have you ever considered going to the ICU, becoming a critical care nurse so you can become a CRNA? I said, I hadn't really thought about it because at the time I knew I was going back to school, but I thought I would follow the role of a women's health practitioner, women's health nurse practitioner. That's really what I thought I was going to do because I loved women's health at the time. I really loved what I was doing for the most part. And so I had- Can I just interrupt you real quick? Sure. I know you guys have all had this nurse that you said that to, and every single one I've said it to did not even think of it themselves. And then they were like, you know what? little bit later, I am going to do that. I am going to go to CRNA school. And they like did it and they killed it. Do you guys all have that person? You just like can feel it in them. You can see it in them. Yeah. And I have told that to people at this point. Yep. So um, he, he talked to some people. And um, I think at that particular point in time, I had only been working in labor and delivery for six months. It hadn't even in their labor and delivery. It hadn't even been that long. So probably as soon as I realized that I could, as soon as the time hit to where I could transfer out, I, I did. And the manager in the ICU, as a matter of fact, she told me up front, she said, I don't really want to take you. We really need some help though. Um, I feel like you should work on the floor or in uh, med surge for a year before we accept you into the ICU because you're coming from a whole different specialty. She said, but I have gotten so many glowing reviews from the people that you worked with in Memphis. I don't know what you did to those people, but that's awesome. Exactly. She said, we'll give it six weeks. And if you fly, you fly. But if you don't, you know, just go out to the floor and work for a year and come back. And so um, I did and I was successful. And so after working there for two and a half years, I applied to CRNA school. I applied to several different schools. And um, I I applied to six schools. I didn't get into three, but I got into three. And at that point, my goal was to just try to get back. I wanted to be closer to Tennessee. I wanted to be back in Tennessee or I wanted to be closer to my family. So that's how I ended up at UTC in Chattanooga. And um, that is where I got my, uh, my master's degree from. So, and it was a, I had a wonderful experience there. Was there a lot of diversity? Define a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think there was uh, one African-American student in the class ahead of me, and there were two in my class. And at the time, I don't think, I'm trying to remember, there were no 
African-American CRNAs at my primary clinical site. There was one at one of the outside rotations that we went to. And the first day that she saw me and me and the other African-American student, we went for that primary rotation together. And she pulled us aside quickly. She said, hi, my name is Pearlene Bulls. I was the first black CRNA in Chattanooga. So I don't know what you're bringing to the table today, but I need you not to make me look bad. Yeah. And oh my goodness. so she said, do you need help? Do you need help studying? What is going on? What are your, basically she was making an assessment very quickly of how to extend herself and what our deficits were. So we would not make her look bad in the rotation. So that was that. Other than that, I did not have any as a, as a CRNA. Now, as a nurse, I definitely had some, I, I, I've always come across it, whether it been, whether it has been implicit bias or all out, just flat out racism. I've experienced them both just at different points in my career. Um, because at this point I've had, I've had a well-rounded career. So, um, so yeah, but after school, I went to Knoxville and then that was my next experience with um, some other issues as far as uh, racism, dealing with diversity or the lack thereof at that point. Yeah, because I'm not one of those quiet people. I, if I find the right heel, I'm going to die on it today. (laughs) So, um, and that's just kind of who I am as a person. You know, people say I'm not Mm -hmm. a lover, I'm a fighter and I'm a fighter. So even if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to be loud and wrong. So, yes. Yeah, so they they remember you. (laughs) They remember me well. But I think my next experience was, I think I had been in Knoxville for several years and I had a patient and she was chewing gum prior to the procedure. And some people don't get riled up about that. But at that that particular point in time, I I was, it was... because I asked her and I was, we were, I was doing my patient interview and I said, is there something in your mouth? And she was chewing gum. And I said, you're going to have to spit that gum out before we go to surgery. And then it became this big situation that it should not have been. And I was called some words that I should not have been called. And I, literally had to call the anesthesiologist I was working in there, uh, working with A, for retreat, but also B, because at this point she was demanding that I not take care of her. And I then explained to her that we do team anesthesia here. So, you know, I'm what you get, you know, regardless of whether or not you're okay with the fact that, that I, you know, am taking care of you today and I'm a person of color because you have explicitly said that this is now not what you want. This is what you get. This is what you're getting. And so he came in and explained to her the same thing. And so then when we stepped out of the room, uh, I told him, I said, that's great. I'm so glad that you were in my corner and that this worked out perfectly. I am not taking care of this patient. And he said, we just did all this talking to the patient, you know, blah, 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 blah. She now has the expectation that that's what's going to happen. I said, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm not taking care of this patient because if anything mm-hmm. goes wrong, mm-hmm. yep, it's going to be bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no, I have zero interest in that. 
you know, and so um, one of my coworkers came and he took over and it was, you know, it was fine. And at the time, at that particular facility, I was the only provider of color. I think we had, there was another, uh, another guy on staff who was, um, he's Mexican. So, but I was the only African-American person there at my current place of employment. I'm the only African-American CRNA. It's a little bit more diverse in the sense that we, instead of it just being mostly Caucasian males and females, we have Caucasian males, females, we have Indian males and females. We have, um, you know, another, co-worker who is of Latin origin. So it's a little bit more, there's a little bit more sprinkled diversity, which I can appreciate, but I am the only African-American person that's on staff, African-American CRNA that's there now in my place, current place of employment. But at the time, for the time that I was back in Tennessee and, and employed as a CRNA, what I would tell people, because I would ask, I was curious, I would ask the students when we had the students, I was just like, now you've been to this facility, this facility, this facility. Are, are there other African-American CRNAs on staff? And they would say, you know, well, no, or, you know, I, I have never seen any. And so I tell people often that until proven otherwise, I was the only one in the city at the time. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. So, so you became Mrs. Uh, Pauline, Pearl, whatever her Pearl, name is. Pearl. 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 Buck. You became I, her. <sighs> It, um, I, look, I didn't mean to. Yeah, <laughs> you stole her. <laughs> be the one pulling pulling up the student. Well, I mean, yeah. those are conversations, and I did not. I was not having those conversations at the time. I do have them now. You say, "Don't make me look bad." <laughs> I, I've only done that one time. He was really <laughs> making me look bad, though. <laughs> and I, I love was you. Like, I was like, "Hey, so." You do know this is a CV rotation. Hey, boo, what is he doing? It, everything. Like, he, it, it's so the thing about one of the things that I kind of get into with students, um, because no one really talks to them about this, I don't think, is purposeful movement in the sense that why is it taking you 18 movement steps to do this one very small task. You should have to Mm -hmm. turn to the left and do this. Meanwhile, you know, like we run our own ACTs. And so I'm just like the ACT machine is around the corner and up the street and you are walking all the way to go get it. Meanwhile, who's watching your patient, you know, put everything in your sight. So all you have to do is make a semicircle around and come back around and your eyes are always where the vitals are. So it's just kind of things like that. And so he was just very disorganized and it's a learning situation, but I'm like, so guess what? I need you to pick a weakness. Like, don't be bad at everything. So, so pick one. Love it. You either have to be strong didactically or you have to be strong clinically. You cannot be weak at both. And I just, I, I had to pull him aside and talk to him about that. So I said, because when you get into your place of employment, it could just be you. Mm-hmm. And you will not have the same luxury or opportunity that other providers have in the sense of you can just kind of fade in the background because you don't fade in the background and you can't do anything about that. That's mm. your, the color of your skin. You don't, you don't have that. I've never had that. So I love that statement. That made it so understandable to me. 
it puts it in a very, such a great perspective. Yeah. yeah. I had a hard time understanding like what it must feel like being in those situations because I've never been the only white girl in a room. I mean, if I have, but I mean, I don't know, whatever, not, not where it like made an impact on my life. So it's hard to understand if you've never been through it, but saying it like that is that you can't blend in because there are times in my life where I purposely step back and blend in to fly Mm -hmm. under the radar. So I can't even imagine not being given that opportunity because you stick out like a sore thumb. And on top of that, then like you're profiled or targeted or, you know, anything. So it really, like the way you said that really like made it palpable you know, and made it very understandable. So thank you. I think our listeners will really enjoy that. It's My social anxiety would be through the roof if I couldn't like blend in at all. I mean, I got to get away from people. As I think is. that's why people develop such strong personalities because you can't blend in. You have I th- one option. I think so. Do you guys think that? So most of the black women I know are like powerful, strong, just like kick ass. I've always admired black women in that way and they just carry themselves just so strong and confidently is that because of it's a fine line though because and i say that because as time has gone on i actually seek out leadership positions at this point and positions that i can put myself in to make a difference because i need my space to be comfortable for me and if it makes it better for the team that is also helpful. Um, and that's usually what I'm seeking for. I want things to be comfortable for the team. If, they, if they're comfortable for the team, it's going to be comfortable for me as well. So, because again, I can't fade into the background. So some of these little things that other people do and administration won't look at them or it won't get run up the flagpole. If I do it, I don't feel like I'm going to be treated the same. So that means I now, we have to police everything now. You know, because yeah. I'm not going to be the one out somewhere on the floor doing something that is within my scope to do, you know, intubating a patient for an airway or something like that. And I magically pull or if something, some propofol or something falls out of this bag because someone else put it there. And now I am sitting in somebody's office for something that I did not do, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think that the line becomes fine because once you start taking on projects and you take on leadership roles and again, find a hill to die on, it's a cross between am I seen as powerful or am I seen as angry? Yeah. Well, like threatening or something. Yeah. I have been told. So it's like, it's, it's very interesting. You should say that. So in working like along my career path, it kind of shifted because I thought I was going to do like academia. But in assuming a role as chief CRNA at Northwest and kind of wanting to go like more into like leadership and then moving into this unique situation where we have a chairwoman who's black, young, a vice chair who's black, young, slash chief CRNA, because that's what the my type my official title is a unique is a very unique position to be in because one a CRNA isn't necessarily supposed to be the vice chair of an anesthesia department. And two, we're both like less than 40 years old. 
pretty much overseeing a level two trauma center or and and uh like level two and ob and so you know when you you say that it's like i was told that i am considered intimidating and i've had to kind of check myself a lot because especially with my accent and when i start to get upset <laughs> i have to kind of <laughs> okay kai dial it back because you have to be able to kind of voice your concern and when i start to get passionate and i start to emphasize then you're like oh yeah no you don't want to get on her bad side mm-hmm. but i have been told in even in this current position that i'm intimidating and i think that's a couple maybe i'm not i just can read people very well i don't like when people don't want to function as a part of a team i don't want people to come in and feel like they can paid and get be paid and just sit around and do nothing there's always something to do mm-hmm. and so for me like when i'm communicating that is kind of like everyone thinks i'm trying to like crack or micromanage but that's not the case we have things to do go do it and then when there's nothing to do then there's nothing to do but it kind of hurt a little bit i've always heard that i'm intimidating anyways it, at that point i was like oh i mean what does everyone else say i've never in my life been told i'm intimidating what really told no do you think Do I think you're intimidating? Yeah. Not at all. Mm. <laughs> But I get told that I get told that constantly. Oh, you do. And I, it like offends me. Yeah. I don't know yeah. why. I mean, I have a pretty bad resting bitch face, but aside from that, <laughs> I think that's I what, think it, that's is, what is, it is. Yeah, I don't I'm not like someone <laughs> that just walks around smiling like the sun Try shines to out smile of my ass. More. Yeah, when people are like smile, I'm like get Botox. It like, helps. Who are so you? Buzz off! I know you're Listen, gonna have I'm a resting bitch start. face if you continue. Um, but uh, you know what? This I is my to happy say? face. <laughs> <laughs> Before I forget, I wanted to say this. I truly mean this. So I know that right now, with everything going on with the Black Lives Matter movement, and I, not COVID. COVID, I think, just made people slow down and pay attention. But I think that it's really difficult sometimes and Myra knows this because her and I have spoken at length and like one day I just like exploded and she just sat there and like listened and I was like I'm so sorry I just did that to you <laughs> but um you know it's tough it's very challenging because there I want to say thank you to the both of you for being willing to come on a podcast where the three hosts of the podcast are white females and we run a group dominated by white females and that you're so willing to open up and talk and more importantly educate us and tell us like hey you know here's what's wrong here's how we fix it here's what you can do here's what sucks and being willing even to point out like you know Ellen you really effed up when you did this because i think that some people who have fought the fight for so long with black lives matter and just their entire life are so tired that they don't even have it left in them to try to educate or or be willing to open themselves up to improve the situation or improve communication because i think they're just so tired of it going south that they just maybe either assume it always will or they just they don't they don't want to be a part of it and i understand that But I think there's something to be said for you guys being willing to like I think at one point Myra said, you know, like we have to be willing to open up those lines and 
educate because it's not like people come, you know, I know I don't and Lacey and Crystal don't come with like bad intentions. Sometimes we just say things we don't know better or we don't realize how we say things that come off wrong or, you know, I've made plenty of mistakes myself. So I think it's so important that you guys take the time to do this, you know, and help us. I mean, literally sometimes I'm like, help me, please. I, this is what I want to say. And I feel like I'm going to sound like a complete asshole. If I say it, I don't know how to say it the right way. And then you get scared to say anything because you're like, am I going to say it right? Am I going to say it wrong? Am I going to get in trouble? And I get in trouble no matter what I say. But I think Myra was there one day when I was just trying to communicate to her, like I am doing my damnest to do the right thing. But sometimes you just don't know. You literally don't know. You don't understand why what you're saying is wrong. Even, you know, it's like what you don't know, you don't know. So thank you for coming on first of all, and taking the time to share your experiences, but also like casting so much light into our lives so that we understand a glimmer of what it's like to live as a black female or an African-American female day to day. And I, I mean, I can't, when you said that about blending in the background, I just like blew my hair back because it made it so understandable to me for the first time. I want to highlight, you know, that both of you have chosen to take on leadership roles in your workplaces. And, um, you know, we, going right along with what Ellen said and what you guys had have both kind of, I think, alluded to is that, you know, because you're unable to blend into the background, you've that started to seek out these leadership positions. I think that's the way I understood it from both of you. Um, but I wanted to ask, like, do you think it's naturally in your personality to seek out those leadership roles? Or do you feel like you were kind of pushed there because of your race? Does that make sense? I, I, I hear, I think I know what you're saying. Um, this is for me and myself personally at this point, I have, um, again, I, I've had a well-rounded career at this point to the point where I kind of don't know where one stops and I begin to a point either, mm-hmm. but to whom much is given, much is required. My mother used mm-hmm. to say that to me my entire life and mm-hmm. So at this point, being given the responsibility, knowing that you cannot blend into the background, knowing that you're the only one there, knowing that you are the home or that you have the ability to be the home to students, newcomers, new hires, anybody else that comes through you, to me, part of your responsibility to help other people up the ladder is to make yourself available for them and put yourself in the best position to be a mentor as possible. I enjoy mentoring people though. And it doesn't matter what color you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually enjoy it. And that's something that I found out, you know, during even more so during the pregnancy, because I was trying my best to do, you know, less, but, um, <laughs> you know, I really, really enjoy it. And so what better way to make myself be heard in a in the most non-biased format than to put myself in positions where I can be heard, where I can have a platform. Because I, I have a, I'm not sure if you noticed, I have a lot to say all the time. <laughs> so, we love, it. love it. And we're so happy to hear it. <laughs> so, yeah, we need more of it. You know, uh, the best way to have a platform is to uh, sometimes make your own and put yourself in a position to where you can have a real platform to be listened to. So um, as opposed to just being some opinionated 
I don't know if we angry, you know, type of chick. And so that's, that was just the best way I think I, I, I've done it. So, but my sister is the same way too. I have a twin sister and she is, she has actually done the same thing in her position as well. She's an acute care nurse practitioner. So she's done the same thing. And so I, I'm, again, I don't know where one, my personality ends and nursing begins mm-hmm. and, you know, where one is the, one is the other, but I, I definitely can see how it would be beneficial uh, if you are the only person, if you're the only African-American person in your department, you know, it, it's wise for you to seek out leadership positions. Mm-hmm. It's wise for you to be the one that's seen. It's wise for you to, to be the one to have the platform as the minority person, mm-hmm. especially if you're working for the benefit of the team, because when you have the ear of people who are going to listen to you, it makes a difference on the days when people are just going to look at you as that black girl or that black boy, because they're not going to be respectful and call you a man, or they're not going to be respectful and call you a woman or CRNA or nurse anesthetist. You know, they're not, sometimes the patients just aren't going to do that. And so you have to prepare for the inevitable, not if it happens, you have to prepare for the inevitable because inevitably there's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So that's just my. I two understand six. that. I would. Right. What about you, Kaya? Oh well. Do you me. do you have anything to add to that conversation? Yeah, I think initially, I didn't necessarily set out to try to, you know, go into leadership or to to even mentor. But what stood out to me was when I was in um, I felt like I went through the process of going through and applying to nurse anesthesia school and going through nurse anesthesia school on my own because even on asking um, a nurse anesthetist who, like if she would be my mentor and she told me flat out no. And then realizing that, you know, towards the end, I kind of had to if give back, you know, so in my mind, as I'm in school, I was like, this is, I'm going to let somebody else have this same experience as I did because it's not a process that you should go through on your own I did and also like for me I've had to kind of learn how to to ask for help so even towards the end of school like I did manage to network and and build you know a group a group of mentors that I consult with even today but like currently you know there's this um, young lady who we are real close with I used at the hospital I used to work at because I got moved to Prince George's and, you know, she just started her first day of clinicals in nursing school on Sunday. And she took a picture of her stethoscope that I bought for her and she showed it to me. And she's like, oh, I'm ready. You know, so now it's kind of for me because I'm in a position. I don't even like consider myself an example, but it's funny because people come up to me and they're like, I really admire you. And I really just appreciate just what you are doing. And I'm like, I'm just... I'm honestly just being me. So that's where my personality comes in because I'm super ambitious. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to do, be at the top of whatever it is I'm doing. Mm-hmm. If I can, if I have the ability to do so, if I'm not good at it, then it's, you know, it's on that. But I'm always seeking for ways to become a better person, but also in the same token, give back and help to elevate others. So there are about like one, two, three, four, Five young ladies who I currently 
mentor now just because they established contact with me um but yeah you know um i think mentorship is very important and representation matters and so that is my new found like goal moving forward professionally i wanted to add, i know crystal had a question so i'm going to let you go first oh it's that's long gone i don't know oh. <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> um i wanted to ask your um if you guys could give us kind of a quick rundown about like how you grew up with parents and how you are as a parent in light of what's happening right now with the black lives matter movement and also how you grew up like what was it like for you did you experience any kind of racism social injustice did your parents shelter you from it did they speak to you about it did they raise you a different way than you know your friends uh talk to us a little bit about that cuz we want to know about parenting and, and color me both go ahead go um, ahead you take the floor first i don't I don't feel like I was raised any different. You know, we actually ended up in, uh, for, for, for all of my primary education, ended up in schools that were, ended up in schools that were, uh, that had students that were, you know, primarily African-American, um, which was fine until I went to college. And um, my father was very much interested in sending us to an HBCU, to which I said no. And he said, well, why would you do that? And I told him, I was like, this, that's because that's not what the world is going to be when I get out. And so um, I need the experience, you know, I want the experience of doing this now. So that was one thing. Other than that, I can't think of anything in particular. I can't think of any social injustice or anything that, you know, was gl- that we glaringly spoke of. You know, my house was just, you know, the house I grew up in, it was normal to me. Yeah, but um, in Tennessee, you didn't experience anything. That's a, that's pretty impressive to me because you always hear well, you know, that the South is. It, it is. It it is now. It's one of those things that are just kind of there, and you kind of just know that it's there. But growing up, it was nothing that I was ever. I was working actually before I had my first experiences with blatant racism. I was actually functioning in my role as a nurse. You know, does it do things now affect how I will raise my daughter? Yes, of course they do. You know, it's a, it's even affected me now, you know, even prior to her being here, it's affected how I had planned to raise her from hair, uh, dealing with hair and, you know, all this other kind of stuff to how I will teach her with how to interact with people in the world. You know, because I have to explain to people that, you know, our hair is different. We have different needs when it comes to our hair. You know, you can't use all of the same products and, you know, all this other type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And in order to be socially accepted, um, African-American women have been taught that they need to straighten their hair. And so I've chemically straightened my hair for four years. And between the pregnancy and COVID, that went out the window myself, you know, because it was I was like, this is where my choice is. I can either Mm -hmm. choose to chemically straighten now that the salons are back open or what I decided was, was that I will always be the best example for her. And so in order to do that, I need to show her that she does not have to chemically straighten her hair to conform to what is felt as societal, societal normal for her Mm -hmm. and that 
she is beautiful the way that she got here. She's beautiful the way that she was made. She doesn't have to change anything about herself ever to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. So that means that I had to change something about myself so that I could be the living example for her, you know, and that goes back to even how you started off talking about colorism and, you know, all that. And then we have to get into the conversation about good hair versus non-good hair and all this other type of stuff. So then it tells me that I, in order, I have to tell her that good hair is what is growing out of her head. Mm-hmm. You that's know, right. that's how you came here. So um, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. So, I love um, that. Yeah. How about you, Kaya? What was it like for you? And, and as a parent and as a child? I think growing up for me, I, I, I think like, again, my childhood was pretty normal. I mean, I was aware of like, you know, colorism, and there are certain issues that, that sometimes I had with my hair growing up. Like my hair was straightened from when I was 12 years old. Um, and I didn't start wearing my natural hair until uh, 2012. So that was many years of like just wearing straighteners and all that stuff. Um, like I said, when I was like 15, I. Um, I came to on a mission trip and that's where I experienced like racism for the first time. And it was a, it was through the church. So the pastor who was with us really just let the guy have it. Like, I know why you're following us and this is not right. He didn't take anything. It was very surprising to me to have to experience that. Um, but after that, like it really wasn't, you know, anything I was considering. Um, I did go to school in Louisiana, North Louisiana. So I went to UMES. I had the experience of going to an HBCU and I had experience of going to a predominantly white institution. So I got the best of both worlds. And our our school was like right in the middle of this one area. And there allegedly were, you know, persons who didn't really like black people living on the outskirts, but I never really experience that but as far as my kids I I never really I have one son and he's 13 and I never really started to grow overly concerned until Trayvon Martin the Mm -hmm. killing of Trayvon Martin and then I, I I you know I did talk to him or I did consider okay he's a black boy growing up in America but now it's just like okay now this is going to affect where I actually want to like raise my family because we were thinking of moving to Florida and we're like, nope, <laughs> that's not yeah. it. And then in terms of just what our expectations for him. So we have him enrolled in sports more often than not. And this might not be, <laughs> this might be a good or bad thing. Brandon will have practice and he will come home from school. He'll have his homework to do. He has to go to practice. And some of his, some of his friends in the neighborhood were outside playing. Nah, bro, you have practice today, so you have to go make sure that you set yourself up for your future. And yeah. it's it's just expectation that we say. I had one parent; she came to. She's like, "You have him doing schoolwork in summer? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. He needs to be ahead. Come this come coming school year. That's what we're doing. Yeah. And it's just and the one thing that. I'm really thankful for is his father because he's such a great role model to him and he really is just 
teaching him how to navigate because he's American. So he's helping him to be able to kind of navigate and have these real frank conversations with him about like growing up as a black man in America. So that, that's one thing I'm very thankful for. As far as my daughter, like Mary said, I have the same thing. I just want to be a good example for her. And yeah, I wear my hair in braids and she sees both my hair in braids and she sees my hair like natural. And she's like, oh, mom, I like your hair. Can I have my hair like that? You know, so it's just letting her appreciate her. So she loves her hair, her curly afro. I don't do it enough because when I leave, her dad doesn't know how to put products in her hair. So her hair gets really dry. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't trust him to comb her hair. So I usually have her hair in braids, but I just, you know, for both my kids, just I really impress upon my son just what the expectation is and how things are different. And the reason we try to make sure that we have him in that extra class where we talk to him about how he how he should act on, like even he has social media, that kind of stuff what the expectations are because if you want to go to college and play sports you have to carry yourself a certain way even in how you talk my husband gets on him because he doesn't enunciate very well you know so I was just going to ask you, you about speak. this yeah. this is how you should speak not, not to say because there's a way that they would say oh to talk white not to talk white but not to sound you know open your mouth and and, and enunciate properly and really just communicate your point and it's I mean some people might call it nitpicking which is just really just equipping them with the best possible things that they can be functioning members in society and be yeah. safe I had a final question for myself that's actually what I was going to ask you about is I know you spoke of colorism is there anything in the African community that you've experienced based on like if you grew up in the South or the North or if you grew up inner city or the suburbs with how different people speak? Because I know like, you know, just being a white person, I hear like a Southern accent on somebody <laughs> and I immediately have in my mind like their culture that comes with it. And versus, you know, somebody from Boston who talks and you hear their accent and you immediately like place them in a certain, you know, like group of people. They're more hard. They are tougher. They're, you know, they're like mobsters that comes with it. Is there something in the African-American community that how you were just saying about speaking? Because personally, I, from a very young age with my kids, focus on them saying things correctly like you said enunciating because i think it's very easy to get caught up with like oh they're little they're little and then you start using the wrong tenses the wrong words and unfortunately it brings with it like as you grow up i remember growing up with kids who spoke wrong and maybe just because they were never corrected it brings with it like a connotation of less educated or you know and that then further exacerbates other things so is that something that you feel like your communities have focused on or like hyper-focused, like you said, or um, not at all? How, how do you feel about that? For me, I mean, I grew up with my, my parents were teachers. So <laughs> that's where, that's where my emphasis comes from. I remember in the first grade, I got in trouble because I did not understand what the teacher was saying because she was speaking like the dialect and I was looking at her like, huh? And so 
they used to spank kids back in back in the day so i got in trouble and i went to my mom i was like i didn't understand what she was saying so my mom went up to the school and she she laid into the teacher it's like no i didn't treat i didn't teach her to 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 be able to speak this so she's not going to understand what you're saying but it's not I mean, that's the difference between like the dialect that we have and the dialect varies throughout the country. Um, and you're right, there may be some like negative connotation, the thicker your dialect is. And so they will say, they'll call us stush, the persons who are able to speak a certain, you know, speak the English in a certain way, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, but my thing with my son is to, yeah, I mean, to be an effective communicator, but you you cannot you have to speak a certain way but I think that's just coming from just how I was brought up and the emphasis that my parents paid um uh placed on being able to communicate effectively and also because again like my son if he becomes an athlete that goes on and or goes into any kind of career and we always look at how these athletes interview and you're just like if you ever go on the TV and yes. interview like that I'm going to come and snatch you out the screen you know just like please you know represent yourself represent your family just you know think about your answers before you answer the question and I think just emphasis on that is because of just how I have grown up and how the things I've taken from that to make sure I'm part of my kids mm-hmm. I agree with that mm-hmm. So I think we're coming up over our time. Thank you girls for spending this much time with us. But I kind of wanted to swing back around and just think I got a little emotional there. I don't know if you guys noticed. And that's yeah. me. I just always do. But I just noticed like we're all so different from different parts of the country. And um, Kaya is not even from the U.S. And we're just so different. But we all just want the best for what? Like our kids. We just want you know, your kids to see that how they are made is okay and how they act is okay and how, you know, I don't know. When you guys were talking about their hair and how you changed your hair, it just made me really emotional. Especially right now, I don't have any hair. Maybe that's what did it. I don't know. But yeah, we're all so different, but we all want the same thing, really. It's, it, it is, it's just a little, it is a little harder. Um, I'm not, I don't know how, I actually had a conversation about hair this week. I talk more about hair now than I ever have in my life. (laughs) And it's because of this baby. But there actually has to be legislation at this point. There is legislation at this point that has been discussed numerous times to support the fact that African-American people should be able to wear their afros, their braids or whatever to support, you know, me growing my hair, how it grows out of my head. Like the fact that that requires legislative support is an yeah, issue. I didn't know that even was an issue. What In what circumstances wouldn't you be allowed? So, so I'm not sure. I know I've seen it numerous times in my Facebook feed how now news anchor, uh, female news anchors are wearing uh, more natural hairstyles. And it's because of, of this, you know, how people will not hire different men or men or women or children will not be admitted to schools with locks or uh, braids or, you know, something like that. And, um, you know, that's an issue. Yeah. For so, sure. 
you know, if, if this were my natural hair and my hair were naturally braided and, you know, if, if I can't wear my hair to work like that, but it's my hair and it's how my hair grows and I've chosen to wear it in a braided style. Why is that wrong? This is my hair that grows out of my head, you know? Um, And why does that require legislative support? It shouldn't. shouldn't. I've never even heard of that. That's crazy. So, wow. We have different states that have to pass, they've passed legislation. I think California was one recently. I actually read about in Jamaica where they were trying to prevent kids from going to school with their locks, which is weird because they have the Rastafari religion and you're just like, they wear locks. I'm confused. It's a religious thing. But so there was this uproar about that, but I don't know what the follow up about that was. So it's a, it's a battle everywhere in, in terms of here. And they say that, you know, it's like a person who wears their hair naturally, like a black person who wears their hair naturally is less likely to get hired just because of the hair. And so I, my own sister called me on FaceTime and she was like, do you think I can wear my hair like this to the interview? And I'm just like, wow. (laughs) She had like braids and I'm like, yeah, I mean, you always have to kind of think, even for me, like I've worn like twists and I had to kind of like, just kind of ball it back and make it look less, um, more together and less tame when I've gone on interviews. Wow, I never even known or thought about that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we just pull it back, leave it down, leave it down or pull it back. That's that's like the only option. Those are your options. Yeah. yeah. That's all you get. Crazy. So uh, thank you both, Myra and Kaya, for coming on the podcast today. And, you know, I I have immense respect for both of you as leaders in our field and um, just as strong women and mamas. And I mean, just, I agree with Crystal, like it's, you know, it's moving when you think about like, like now I need to model something for the next generation and for the little people who are watching me. And um, I just have immense respect for both of you and, and we just can't thank you enough for sharing your stories um, and continuing this conversation with us. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much all I've got. Like, I just I just have so much respect for both of you. <laughs> thank you. Same. I mean, you guys have taken a lot of your time to chat with us, and and we really appreciate it. And I know our listeners appreciate it. And it really falls on willing ears and unwilling ears with the unwilling ears I feel like are opening slowly and carefully in their own little corner but I feel like this is this is work that needs to be done and and I really appreciate you guys for for doing this okay so you can follow us on our socials at Facebook on Facebook at scrub caps and sippy cups or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at hey smart mamas you can follow us each individually I am at cm alber Ellen is at Ellen Lalletta, L-A-U-L-L-E-T-T-A. Plus L-A-U-L-E-T-T-A. Damn it. Um, <laughs> and then Lacey is at Ms. Lacey Lynch, L-Y-N-C-H. And do you girls want to shout out your socials or not so much? <laughs> not so much? My, my social is complicated. It's K <laughs> underscore A-Y-O-O-L-A underscore. That's my Instagram. It's literally complicated. <laughs> We can link it in the bio. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you girls. And um, I know we mentioned on our last podcast, we have a 10% off for um, at DNA masks. 
for uh, our listeners. What is our podcast 10? Podcast, podcast 10. 10. Did it today. Yeah. yeah. And Check they have the cutest new designs for fall and Halloween out. I was like drooling today. I couldn't stop myself. Oh, they yeah. also have Mac and Miller um, yeah. hats and masks. So let's ask, are you ladies Mac or Miller fans? Miller. Miller Mac two. Mac four. Mac four. Oh, <laughs> three. Mac three. Or go home. <laughs> Go, go big. Hiya, that go is big <laughs> I don't care. Mac four. And if the airways anterior throw a bougie in there, oh my guys, God. Go. I love we're it. good. I love I it. <laughs> Miller, oh my God. I love Miller. I'm, I'm a Mac, but I'm a three. I'm a three. I only pull out the four for like, you know, Sasquatch or something. thank you ladies so much for joining us and thank you to our listeners for hanging with us here and uh, we'll see you on the next episode see you next time bye thank you guys thank you guys bye thanks girls bye